you know, was always making too much noise, always speaking too loudly, always finding the words that rhyme and then reveling in them. So it's the word as a tool. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Ears Wide Open. It's a podcast, a project of the Open Book at 201 Ponsonby Road in Auckland. I'm Anna Livesey. I have got, I'm in the state of recovering from a cold today, so excuse my husky voice. Um, I also obviously need to lay off the late nights and the cigarettes. Um, for this episode, we have got Irene Corbett with us and we also have Sian Denon who's going to assist her with reading. And then we're going to talk to Irene and then episode five, which will be amazing will be Sian on her own. So um, together they are known as the Red Tent. I saw them performing uh, in 2017 at Auckland University as the Red Tent, looking and sounding amazing. So, hello. Hello. Hi. Hi, Sian. Mm. Hi. Hello. Hi. You're going to read something for us. Yeah, um, this is one of my recenter poems. This is called Nomine Cupiditatum. Nomine Cupiditatum. The act must be something very serious. Forgive me, father, for I have sinned. The bear flowed off the table and over his shoes. He fumbled with a dishcloth, smiling lazily, and his freshly washed black hair fell into his eyes as softly as the gauze curtain which floated on the summer breeze behind us. In the garden was a bathtub full of ice and hebe flowers, and I thought, perhaps the baptism is on the cards? In order to make a good confession, please follow these steps. The person must have sufficient understanding of what is being done. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. The orange sofa sunk as deep as the marina trench. My skirt was too short, and I encouraged the cushions to swallow me whole. I knew his mother would not approve because I eat too much. I desperately rubbed rice into the fabric of that room. Then there was talk of starting communes and... Buddhism, the logistics of shower curtains and speaking in tongues, and he watched, filtering the night through eyelashes, intoxicating, and I watched him, that dark angel who smiled so easily. I wanted it to be the rapture. In order to make a good confession from the last time you made a good confession, the person must have sufficient freedom of the will. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. I wanted communion with this boy. Perhaps it was his immaculate white trousers, or the sense that I would be breaking some unspoken rule. So he ate the cake that made me sick, a red ring of panic forming around my mouth, a prayer bubbling in my chest. In order to make a good confession from the last time you made a good confession, to make a good confession, repeat after me. Nomine cupiditatum. Nomine cupiditatum. Amen. 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 Thank you, thank you for your help, Sian. So, um, performance and poetry. So that's a very performative poem that you've just read for us there. Yeah. And the first time I saw you, you were doing a performance piece. And I know that you were also involved with theatre mm. and that some of your poems have music attached to them. So talk to me about what is interesting to you about poetry and performance. Um, well, I come from a background of performance. I specifically come from a drama background but I was raised in a house where there was always music and always reading and a lot of you know the sort of Christmas plays and the performance of those kind of small texts for 
you know, local groups, whether it be church or I um, was homeschooled. So I belonged to a wider extended homeschooled network. And we did a lot of those kind of really community-based performance pieces, which was a mixture of poetry, a mixture of theatre, a mixture of music. So I come from that, yeah. So what feels like your home base then? Like if you were to say the thing that is most core to my creative practice, what is it? Oh, it's definitely the word. It's not specifically poetic word because I think that a lot of theatre is poetry in itself. Um, But language, language and expression. It was always making too much noise, always speaking too loudly, always finding the words that rhyme and then reveling in them. So it's the word as a tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's fascinating to watch... um, people performing your work I guess how did you feel so I saw a play that you're involved in and Pan is Dead yeah. recently how does it feel to watch people do something that you've created but not be doing it yourself that's the first time I've been sort of in a directorial role for something that large so I, that was a really weird process to get to performance night and have to completely step back and I found myself <laughs> still be nervous and having the nerves of an actor on our opening night and, and having to really learn how to let go and learn how to trust the cast and um, the musicians and the composers and everybody involved that had put the work in that they would do it and they'd do it justice. And it was that shared work rather than myself on stage sort of up for sacrifice. <laughs> yeah, for sacrifice. How much... Um of yourself as in your work are these works of fiction or works of fact or something in between hmm am I a person of fiction I <laughs> yeah are that, you real am I you re- don't I just want to say she's wearing an incredible multi-layered white muslin dress with a with a purple embroidered clitoris in the middle <laughs> of it um I think the person who embroidered it thought of it as a flower but that's what it looks like to me. Mm. So I'm not sure she is real because she's like a vision that's appeared here at the open <laughs> book. too kind. Um, well, I, I say that because, I, I mean, the first time I was ever on stage, it would have been like four and a half. And I, I never let that experience go. I never stopped wanting to perform and, and find how you can shape yourself to a situation and how you're never just limited to be one thing or the other. So is my work me well it I mean it's on the page so at some point it stops being you but it also is but even the further away it gets from myself the more fictive the more fiction it becomes that it's still you know it's a product of me yeah but how true that is to the next day I don't know right so the changing the changing artistic consciousness shows itself Hmm. on the page and also you're comfortable with it being different from one day to the next yeah I'm, and also I think I'm quite comfortable with knowing that my writing can not represent me and that's all right. And people can read it and think, oh, that's, that's inside a mind. And it probably isn't, but that's okay as well. Yeah, yeah. so there's a private self and a, and yeah, a creative self. Yeah, to an extent, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what are you working on at the moment and where do you, where's your creative passion going right now? Well, right now I'm studying honours in drama at Auckland University. So one of the projects I'm working towards and in the process of sort of getting off the ground is I will do my 30 points of research and a practical project. So I'm hoping to stage a play and I'm hoping to personally direct rather than act in it. Um, and how are you going to choose the play that you 
work on? Well, I'm working with two other students at the moment because we need to work in groups to make this work. And I'm hoping that it will be a relatively sort of group decision rather mm-hmm. than one of us pushing one thing over the other. But um, in saying that, I actually have just finished a research period over the summer, which I was looking at um, dementia, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. Um, and how applied theatre can help with neurodegenerative diseases and those kind of things. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it was a lot of information. Um, so were you working with actual dementia patients? No, no, I was, I was working with the literature. So I was, it was basically one extended literature review. I was just reading article after article after neuroscience journal after study after, yeah. And what attracted you to that? Um, my late grandmother actually uh, had severe Parkinson's, so in the later stages, as I was becoming more aware of what was actually happening, she was suffering more and more from dementia. So that is quite a personal sort of experience, and seeing that firsthand and spending a lot of time in rest homes, spent a lot of time as a child in rest homes before they all happened, performing, funnily enough, um, and then to return as an adult and sort of see the really the heartbreaking nasty sides of what can actually go on um, and what it's like to lose someone really drew me to, you know, theatre is this big passion of mine and then how to use theatre in a really practical way within your community. I wanted to find out if that was possible, who had done it, did it work? Was there actually evidence that it works? Um, I'm happy to say that I got answers to all those questions, which is why I now want to stage uh, a play text that looks at dementia and memory loss. Um, and we're hoping, we're hoping to follow it with a discussion afterwards to see, engage and record how our audience experience what happened on stage, whether they experience empathy or confusion, like does that extend their knowledge of dementia and aging and memory loss or what? Yeah. Wow. So I've, spend a long time caring for someone with dementia and um, one of the things I learned was that the grace of entering into the world they're in mm. so there's no yeah. need to stay with what you are experiencing as reality and there's no grace in doing that you need to move to where they are and I guess theatre gives you a you know, a, st- a structure and a permission mm. to do that but yeah. I can imagine that being incredibly powerful and I know that um the human connection is what keeps mm, the brain and the heart yeah. alive. And when you have to make a choice for someone to go into a rest home, that is one of the things mm. they may end up missing. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, the way life is. But there's some amazing literature as well about experiments in rest homes with giving people things to care for mm. and letting... Have you read that book about the guy who was like, we're getting a hundred birds? No, I haven't. I'll what find is it that? for you. Oh, it's please do. Amazing. Yeah. Um, put it in the podcast notes but basically he started working in a rest home was like oh this is terrible and tried to register everyone's drugs and stuff and that just really didn't help and then he was like we're just missing life he's like right Mm. I've ordered a hundred birds everyone's getting a bird everyone's getting a plant we're getting cats we're getting and it was this chaos but this kind of joyful chaos and people really picked up wow yes so dementia is something very close to my heart as well that's interesting um and I um love the idea of art that can do service Mm. I love the idea of art that does no service other than exist but I also love the idea of art that can do service 
Um, okay, so uh, Catholicism. <laughs> Catholicism, okay? So uh, yes. comes up a lot in your work. Uh, were you raised Catholic? Or Not at all. borrowed rags? I have a suspicion. I, mean, oh, I was raised in the church, so... It's not the same No, thing, it's not so. at all. Um, and I know that, and I didn't even realise how often it turns up that this is a language I... It's a vocabulary and an imagery and a history and a context that I'm drawn to. And yes. I can't help but wonder, I mean, I have a really big love for Shakespeare. You know, it appears in a lot of everything from that time. You know, I'm pressing my hands yeah. to my heart. <laughs> Listeners going, oh my God, um, I know, Shakespeare. Mm. Well, you know, most people have some connection yes. to Shakespeare. Um, so I, I've spent a lot of time in sort of the history of England and the church and everything and you know where that course, connects to everything because Shakespeare of course being absolutely not Catholic not. Shakespeare being a, a, an apologist or a, or a you know scion of scion's the wrong word of Queen Elizabeth mm. who was the absolute cause of Anglicism <laughs> yes well, the original proge- progenitor of Anglicanism you can't look at that without knowing the context. That's, yeah. If I was to say one thing about people, me, you, I would probably say that I'm always context, context, context. I right. want to know why about everything. So, um, again, homeschooled, we read a lot of books. So just anything and everything. So I think it's seeped in via these sort of ways. And so there's history. something about the language and the imagery and that um, high church yeah. activity that really appeals to your dramatic side and it was unavailable through the religion you were raised in? Yeah, I so I was probably primarily raised Baptist, which is just not sort of ritualistic at all, other than the baptism aspect. But other than, I mean, I can't even remember participating in communion very often. So there just wasn't any sense of those kind of structures. It's much less of an institution, much less of a show of grandeur, you know, where the current church my parents attend used to be a rollerblading rink, I think. It's just a giant dark I have box. a wonderful music <laughs> picture of them at church. Yeah. It's awesome. I love it. Yeah. Good um, for them. But I, I was lucky enough to travel about 10 years ago and saw, you know, I was in Italy and I was in France and I was in England and saw some of these huge, huge structures Um and, you know, the dead popes encased in their glass boxes, which is kind of traumatising when you're 11. But anyway, yes, yeah. Catholicism has um, an amazing love for turning the profane to the sacred, right? Mm. So you take a dead body, <laughs> which is the most profane thing, and then you turn it sacred by preserving it. And turning and sacred profane. It. Well, that's uh, exactly <laughs> right. That's right. So are you a person of faith now, then? I would definitely say I'm a person of faith. I'm not a person who likes hypocrisy and hierarchy and institution, though. So that's been an ongoing process, and I still don't really know where I am in that, but I've had a lot of anger with the church as this generalised thing that represents a lot of hypocrisy to me. Um, But then again, that's the danger in any institution or organisation. I mean, you can point the... finger at any of any of our corporations they'll have the same amount of corruption and yeah but 
I don't know what the answer is, and I don't know how I'm going to sort that out. Well, but maybe we could talk is. again in a year. And yeah. Know, yeah, the, the ongoing series. Irene, <laughs> I might have found Irene, a perfect church. <laughs> Irene um, updates us on her um, journey mm. into understanding the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. Okay, well, look, um, would you like to read us something else? Yeah. Wrap this, wrap this up. What else have you got here for us? I have us? a huge change. I think what I'm going to read is the end. I wrote a three-part sort of series thing um, the end of last year looking at, I guess, the woman's body and depression and... All of our favourite topics. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Very so I think, I think you might have heard this one before. I mean, I could choose any part of it, but oh, my God. Our listeners this. probably won't yeah. have, though. Yeah. So we'll probably go with this because I think it might be the more accessible of the three. Um, yeah. So this is a piece called Only Woman Bleed. Actually, I'm going to stop you really because I want to ask you one more question. So you'll hear in a moment, listeners, that this is a very overtly kind of political poem, right? Of the personal is political kind of type. And you've talked already about art and service. Hmm. What what do you think about the interaction of art and politics? Ah, well... (laughs) That's when I would start talking about science fiction has been the only place that you can truly criticise anything without getting in big trouble. So I, I really feel very strongly that art is, it needs to in some way reflect and regurgitate and digest and perhaps criticise what is going on. That doesn't mean don't be aesthetic and pleasing. Um, but I think personally... Unless the art I'm creating is more than just something I'm going to look at once and go, oh, that was pretty, and then forget about it, it's probably not enough for myself. Yeah. I'm not sure that's a proper answer. No, it's a fine answer. Just talk to me a bit more about um, the science fiction thought. It's <laughs> um, an amazing thought. I grew up on Isaac Asimov, and anyone who's read Isaac Asimov will know that he said a lot of things that the scientists of today probably should be thinking about as they push forward with AI and push forward with all these kind of... um, I read these texts and they get some things right and they get some things wrong, but they seem to me so fundamentally important as this zone in which uh, a writer can go, I see this thing happening now and I will make... I will make a hypothesis based on the information before me of what might occur at the end of it. And that's what they write when they write these books. And so I'm not hearing people go, here is the possible bad outcomes of this thing we are doing now. And that worries me. The lack of foresight and the lack of going, what if? And everybody just goes, oh, here's a positive outcome. But actually, there's 97 negative outcomes sitting over there that nobody's willing to acknowledge. But science fiction is really good at going, here it all is at once. Mm. Consider this. Well, yeah, that's it. Consider this. That's what I think art should be, is consider this. That's great. Consider this. Consider this, readers. We're going to have um, the closing reading from Irene, Only Women Bleed, the 5%. Mm. Only Women Bleed, the 5%. It is taxing. Supplies are not afforded anything but luxury. The last necessary $30 bill for betrayal, leakage, and bulk. Is it still a purchase of hope? Well, mostly for the hopers with partners. 
My body is worth its weight in tax. And even youth hope against sickness or the blackout or the immaculate. Censured for the physiological responses that culture then declares is so very us. How is the body taxed? Well, I must work to earn my body. And if I do not work, my body is worthless to me. Cry more. Just never in public and not when you can't help it. Only when you are repressing. Couldn't mothers just teach their boys? And also put a damn bin in every bathroom. Great variance requires great education, but even I Google in a doubtful fashion. It would be easier to claim a tumour than explain the high and then the drain, hollow, crying hormones out of my eyes. Last month, a ten-year-old girl was sent home from school. Was it all an invitation, a suggestion, an encouragement to live in a red tent for a week? How much tax must be paid before my body is earned? Who can afford it? Who can pay the price? The sentence will cost us 30 years. Thank you so much, Irene Corbett. That has been an amazing conversation. This has been episode four of Ears Wide Open. Uh, Join us again on Thursday next week for episode five.